In just a few moments, I'm going to read you some verses from Psalm 121. As we gather together today, remember that as much as we try to deny this truth and as much as we want to pretend that it isn't true, we all are needy people. We all need help. I needed help getting my kids to school this week. I needed help putting the sermon together. I needed help in lots of things that I was involved with this week. I bet you did too. And when we worship, we are being reminded that God is not only our helper, he is our keeper. Hear this from Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither sleep, slumber, nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. I'd love to look with you this morning in the book of John, John's Gospel, chapter 6. If you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn there. I'm going to read the first 21 verses of this chapter. We're going to be spending a few weeks in this chapter together. And I'd remind you, whether you're just visiting with us for the first time or whether you've been here every Sunday this year so far, that there's a particular reason why we're looking at the Gospel of John. Uh, there's a particular theme we're thinking about together this year. It's actually found in verse roughly 31 of John chapter 20. Uh, there are lots of things that Jesus said and did that we don't have an official record of. But what John writes in these 21 chapters, he writes that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing we might have life in his name. So this whole year we are thinking about life with Jesus. And we are exploring how, what John says about that in these chapters together. So listen to this. I'm going to read you John 6, 1 through 21. This is the word of God. He literally breathed out what we're about to hear. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread, so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their full, excuse me, and when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. 
When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Let's pray. Let's ask God's help. Great God, we are here gathered as your people, as you have fed us this week, as you have provided food each day, we thank you that you now give us living food, that your word satisfies our souls, brings us to awareness of who we are and who you are. So Lord, we pray that you would satisfy us again and again. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would convince us in new ways that Jesus is indeed the lover of our souls, that more than all in him we find. Strengthen us by feeding us for the week ahead. We pray this for your glory. We pray it for our good. We pray this so that we might know how to seek first your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. If we are going to get into this passage and not just think about these passages of Scripture as something that's to be intellectually stimulating, but actually something in which we are supposed to dive into and find our lives in these chapters, if we are going to get into this passage, there are certain things that need to be on the forefront of our minds. A couple questions. Here's the first question. What am I doing that has eternal value? What am I doing that has eternal value? Let's tease that out just a little bit more. What have I done up to this point in my life that my death will not erase? What have I done in my life up to this point that my death will not erase? What am I currently doing that my death will not erase? What do I hope to do in my life that my death will not erase? That's the first question. Think about that. What am I doing that has eternal value? Second question is this. What do I do? What do you do when you feel like life is being ripped apart at the seams. What do you do when you feel as though your life, life itself, is being just pulled apart at the seam? Maybe another way to say this is this question. What do you do through the struggles and challenges of life? 
What do you do in those struggles? What do you do during those challenges? What do you do through them? What are you doing? I realize that in asking you those questions, they have a relatively hard edge to those questions. I get that. There's a hard edge to those questions. I fully acknowledge that. And I'm not asking those questions because I'm trying to push anyone into this corner of despair. I'm not trying to get you to self-loathe at all. I ask those questions because I want all of us to connect with what is going on in these two stories that we just read in John 6, the first 21 verses. We all need to connect with those stories. So here's the experience of the disciples. Here are the two stories. Verses 1 through 15 is where Jesus feeds the 5,000. Matter of fact, this story is told in all four gospel accounts. All four gospel accounts have this particular story. There was a large crowd that was following Jesus. If you look at verse 1 and 2, it tells you that more than likely they were following Jesus because they were there to seek thrills. They were thrill seekers. They knew that he was healing people, and they wanted to see something really amazing. So they were following Jesus. Wherever he went, they would go. And... We also find out in verse 10, there were about 5,000 men that were there. What that means is this, there were a whole lot more people there than 5,000. That's just shorthand to say, if you were actually to calculate the wives, the children, the actual crowd would be closer to 15 to 20,000 people. It was a large, large crowd. Now, just as a side note, real quick. You know why it's important that we recognize and affirm that there were like way more than 5,000 people here, like 10 to 20, 15 to 20,000 people? Because all of these four gospel accounts were circulating within no later than 30, 40 years after Jesus was raised from the dead. Some of them much sooner than that. Some within 10, 15 years of his resurrection. The message of the gospel and the reality of the church, God's people in the world, would never have gotten off the ground if this wasn't true. These stories were circulated in all of the Mediterranean. There were 20,000 people, 15,000 people, 10,000 people. They would still be alive, many of them, 15 years after Jesus' resurrection. It is important that we think about that. What we have before us is God's word. It is reliable and it is true. The church would never have spread. These stories would never have taken root if you had the ability to disprove the reality of what Jesus did here. But like other accounts in other places, you could actually go to people who are alive when this happened and ask them. And they would tell you it's true. That's why it's important. We have the Bible and we can trust it. Well, back into the details of the story. Jesus ends up taking the food from the young boy. He had five barley loaves and two fish. Jesus gives thanks, the text says, in verse 9, excuse me, verse 11, and then he distributed to the crowd. And as verse 12 and 13 tell you, they had leftovers, all kinds of leftovers. From these little loaves and little fish, few number. Jesus feeds this whole crowd of people. That's the first 15 verses. That's the first story. As a matter of fact, at the end of verse 15, you find the transition. 
Jesus goes away to the mountaintop to depart. Other accounts say he was there to spend time with his father, to pray, to be alone with his father. Well, while that was going on, verse 16 through 21, the second story happens. After this feeding, the disciples went to sea. They went to sea at night. They got on a boat at night, and they were trying to cross the sea to get to the other side. That's what verse 17 tells you. But what happens is, in verse 18, a storm comes, great winds. They were trying to row three or four miles, and they couldn't make it to the other side. They couldn't do it. They weren't strong enough to make it through the storm. That's when Jesus comes calmly walking out to them. It's when Jesus then calms the storm. The winds and the waves know his name. They recognize his voice and they obey. And then verse 21, what you read is you find that the disciples were immediately on the other side. They immediately arrived at their destination. Boom, they're there. Those are the two stories. Those are the questions for you to be thinking about. Now let's get into the takeaways. I have three takeaways for you. The first one is this. What do we do with all this data? What do we do with these stories? How do we, how do we connect those questions about what am I doing that has eternal value? What do I do when I feel like my life is being ripped apart at the seams? That's where those questions need to stay on the forefront of our minds. Here are the takeaways. Number one, Jesus is going to push us to discover our helplessness. Jesus is going to push us so that we would discover our helplessness. If you, if someone has told you that the message of Christianity and the purpose of Christianity is to make you stronger and stronger and stronger, or if someone has told you that the message of Christianity is how to get the results of your plans, run. Run from that. It's so not true. And it has done a lot of damage. And if that is what you have been told the message of Christianity is, I'm so sorry. Because the message of Christianity doesn't make us stronger and stronger. And God is not the best way to control my life. And God's not the best way for me to get the outcome of my plans. That's not the message of Christianity at all. As a matter of fact, Jesus is pushing us over and over and over so that we would discover our own helplessness. When you think about feeding 10 or 20,000 people, look at what Jesus says to them in verse 5 and 6. Now remember, Jesus already knew what he was going to do. He already knew how he was going to handle the situation. That's exactly what verse 6 tells us. So what does he do? He asks them, he asks the disciples, well, what do you think we should do? What do you think we should do? And Philip says, uh, I have no idea. If I were to have 200 denarii, which one denarii was a day's wage, if I were to have two-thirds of my year's salary, Jesus, I don't, it wouldn't feed everybody here. We couldn't buy enough supplies to feed all these people. Jesus is pushing Philip and pushing the disciples to realize that they are helpless. There's nothing that they can do. They don't have enough resources. They don't have enough money. They don't have enough anything. They don't have enough anything. They can do nothing. Well, what about the boat? It says the disciples were caught in the storm. They couldn't get to the other side. 
in Mark's account in chapter 6, it actually says that the disciples were in a tremendous amount of pain because they were trying to row to get to the other side. And they couldn't do it. They were working hard and they couldn't make it. In other words, it seems like life was ripping apart at the seams. I can't get where I'm going I can't take care of this issue right in front of me. These people want food, and there's nothing I can do about it. I don't have enough resources, even if I could give you two-thirds of my yearly wage. I can't do anything about it. You see, Jesus puts his disciples, he puts us in positions in which we have to assess the situation that we're in, assess the situation that's going on. He puts us in situations in which we have to realize That we are coming to the end and have come to the end of ourselves. That our resources are not enough. That our effort, rowing the boat, trying to get to the other side, that our effort won't cut it. That all the preparation we've had up to this point, whether they're well-seasoned fishermen or people that are used to being in a crowd, that all of our preparation isn't adequate. Jesus is going to put us in positions in our lives in which we have to admit that we can't make it happen, whatever it is. Whatever it is that you want, that you can't make it happen. How many of you have ever been in a place, or maybe you're in a place right now, or maybe you know some people that are in this place in their lives? where they begin to think that service is supposed to be terrible. Know anybody there? Because if they're there, they really feel like their life is being pulled apart at the seams. When you're at a point in which serving people seems absolutely terrible, something's going on there that's deeper down than just one more thing on the calendar. How many of you are in this spot or know people that are in this spot in which there's no margin in their life? Maybe you're at that spot right now in which there's no margin in your life. You can really feel like your life is being ripped apart at the seams when there's no margin in your lives. How many of you have jobs or the kind of jobs in which people can say things that are entirely wrong about you and there's nothing that you can do except just absorb it? You want to feel like your life is being ripped apart at the seams? Have a job where that can happen, where people say things about you that are not true. You can't do anything about it. You know anybody or have been in this situation yourself in which when hard things happen, the immediate response and instinct is to work harder? Been there? Something's going on in your life and you feel like, you know what, if I just work harder, I can, I can fix this. I can do this. I can take on more responsibility. I can work more hours. I can sleep less. You do that for any length of time, and you will start feeling like your life is being pulled apart at the seams. Have you ever been in a situation or know someone that found out that something is wrong with their child or their loved one, and you can't fix it? You ever been in those situations? That feels like our lives are being ripped apart at the seams. You ever been that season in life in which you felt like there was this constant sense that you were doing too much and simultaneously you're not doing enough? 
these are often things that lead me to feel like my life is being pulled apart at the seams. In these moments and in these seasons, when we feel like our lives are being ripped apart, instead of getting busier, instead of just trying to be a better person, instead of just thinking, you know what, I can white-knuckle my way through this just a little bit longer, or instead of trying to create an alternative reality. You ever had that before? In which you just create a whole new narrative? And you know deep down it's not true? But then once you start creating an alternative narrative, like it seems kind of fun to just make things up. Instead of falling in and giving in to any of those temptations, if we're open to growing and being mature and growing in wisdom, you know what? We could admit that we're helpless. We could just stop and say, I can't change this. I can't fix it. I am helpless here. If we're open to wisdom, if we're open to maturing and growing in maturity, we could just acknowledge our helplessness. And just to state the obvious, to let, let you in on a secret that I should have learned and am still learning myself, I should have learned it a long time ago. I can't manage my marriage, my singleness, my children, my job, my career, my spiritual life. I can't change the circumstances in my life. Being in control is an illusion. And oftentimes Jesus is pushing us to discover our own helplessness. So that we might grow and say, God, I need you. Because I can't do anything. Well, that's one takeaway. Here's a second one. There's always grace underneath grace. You remember when we looked at John chapter 4 with Jesus dealing with the woman at the well? And he was getting at the sin underneath her sin. You remember that? How Jesus is always after our hearts and he's always after motives, and he's always after how our hearts work and operate? Well, the positive is true as well. There's always grace underneath grace. You see, it's not just that what Jesus does here in feeding the crowds, the enormous crowd, it's not just the reality that he calms the storm that is a gracious thing, but there's grace underneath the grace. There's something going on underneath Jesus' feeding the crowds miraculously and and calming the storm. You see, in the Bible, the point of the miracles of Jesus, in the gospel accounts, the point of the miracles is not to show how powerful Jesus was. The point of his miracles is to show how he was going to use his power. You know, if Jesus just wanted to demonstrate his power by doing miracles, he could have done a much better job. He could have done amazing things that would absolutely blow our minds. But he did all of his miracles to show how he was going to use his power. You see, it's not that physical laws were suspended and Jesus did what he did. No, he was showing us how he was going to execute and use his power. Think about it. They were all signs of what Jesus had come to do. You see, when God created the world... He didn't have a world in which children were needlessly dying. When God created the world, 
he didn't create places that lacked water, sufficient water for people to live. When God created the world, he didn't create the world with death and disease and suffering and storms and all kinds of messed up manifestations of nature. And when Jesus heals the lame and raises the dead and heals the sick, yes, even when he turns water into wine, the best wine, and even when he provides for thousands of people and their leftovers, even when he is calming the storm, he is giving us a glimpse into what the world should be. He's giving us a glimpse into what the world will be. He's saying, I'm on a mission and this is where we're going. He's saying, this is how I'm going to use my power to restore things, to make things the way that they were intended to be. That's number two. Here's three. The third takeaway is this, that we are supposed to put our lives into his hands. Everything about us. We are supposed to put our lives into his hands. The feeding of the 5,000, they were supposed to tell Jesus that they were helpless. And they did. And Jesus provided. In the storm, they had to admit they couldn't go anywhere. They had to admit they couldn't get to the other side. No matter how much training they had had and how much experience they had, fishing and being out in the water and familiarity with the, with the lake, they, they couldn't do what they needed to do. To borrow an analogy from someone else, idols in our lives are like life rafts. You know, life rafts are those things that, that, we, that we build our lives on. It's, it's kind of like what we want our life to be. It's the thing that kind of holds us up. It's the thing that centers our, our, that we center our life around. It's the way that we try to stay in charge of what we're doing and what we think we should be doing in our lives. And Jesus sends storms to show us the inadequacy of our life rafts. He sends the storms in our lives to show us what we have actually centered our life on. He sends storms in our lives so that we can affirm what is actually holding us up, which oftentimes is Ourselves, our abilities, our experience, our skills, our name, our power, our money, whatever it is. And Jesus sends storms to expose all that. You see, the storms are not meant to mess up our lives. Storms are meant to clarify our lives and to help us see what our lives are really about and how much we need to admit our helplessness and how much we need to see the grace underneath grace. One of my heroes and favorite people is Jenny's pastor in college. His name is Joe Novenson. Uh, I wish I could spend a whole lot more time with that guy. Joe is a remarkable man. Recently I heard him tell a story about a friend of his who was a gold glove boxer. And this particular man, uh, in his later years, actually got the disease ALS. And it was starting to take a firmer and firmer hold on his life. And he came up to Joe one day and he said, Joe, 
Do you know why the hair is falling off the top of my head and growing out my nose and my ears? And Joe said, nope, I have no idea. And this is what he said. God wants my body to look like my soul has looked all along so that I can't lie anymore. So that I can't lie anymore. I have to trust Christ. I have to trust Jesus. As we age, we all come apart. You feel that? Me too. If you haven't gotten there yet, praise God. (laughs) Pray for Jesus' swift return so you don't have to feel like your body is coming apart. Because you will. You will. As we age, we come apart. And as we age and as we come apart, what happens is that we discover again and again, and other people can see over and over, whether or not we have lived by a moral externalism or deep down internal transformation. Because you can put up the lie for a long, long time. You can spend three plus decades of your life acting as if you're great. When you start getting older, you start figuring out, is my life really based on my external formalism, moralism, whatever you want to put in there? Or is there real deep down inward transformation so that now it doesn't matter what I look like on the outside and it never did anyway? What matters is that I have Jesus and that he is everything for me. When you think about what happens in the storm, what did Jesus do? Did Jesus go to the Doppler radar and was like, well, disciples, I just checked the Doppler radar and here it is. There's a front coming in and things are going to get a whole lot worse. Buckle up. Is that what he does? Of course not. You know what he does in the storm? He never ever minimizes the storm. He never minimizes the storms that we go through. He knows them all from the inside himself. He never minimizes the storms of life. What he does is that he makes himself larger. How in the world do you get that from the text? Look at verse 20. Do you know what he literally says there? Do not be afraid. I am. Now, if you know your Bibles just a little bit, that should make chills go up and down your arm and your back. That statement, I am, is what God said to Moses at the bush, the burning bush. Jesus gets into the boat, sees the disciples, and says, I am. I am self-sufficient. I have no beginning. I have no end. I am holy. I have all power. Now, what were you saying about the storm? He is not minimizing the storm. He's maximizing himself. He's making his disciples, he's making us understand that he is all-sufficient. And if we have him, we can painfully, with even anger and frustration and grief, go through the storms of life because he will continue to make himself larger and larger. 
How could that gold glove champion say that to Joe? Because God was stripping him down to where he could say, I'm helpless. I need Jesus. Jesus uses the storms of life to make us into what we ought to be. Meaning this. Here's some things I was thinking about. Jesus makes his people joyful, yet empathetic and easily touched by grief. What Jesus does is he maximizes himself in our lives. It means that he creates a people that are driven and yet understanding and flexible. It means that when Jesus is maximizing himself in the lives of his people, his people become courageous and yet incredibly humble. It means that they're loving yet wise and thoughtful. It means that his people are a people of conviction, and yet they're incredibly patient. It means that his people, when Jesus gets large in our lives, it means that his people are commitment-oriented. It means that his people are involved, and yet learning over and over their limitations. See, all this is what we see in the life of Jesus himself. So what are we doing that has eternal value? What are we doing? We are giving ourselves to Jesus at every possible moment. We are acknowledging through the circumstances of life, every day, every chance we get, that we are helpless, that we need him, and he makes us into what we ought to be. He makes us into what we should be. What do we do when we feel like life is being ripped apart at the seams? What do we do when we're in the storm? The answer is a person. The answer is Jesus. The answer is that we recognize again and again that he is I am. Whatever you're doing this week, what Jesus has done means something for your everyday life. And he wants you to know, God wants you to know, that he will fulfill in you everything that he has promised. So receive his blessing and try to live, with, try to live this week as if you actually believe it's true. The Lord your God is going to bless you and he's also going to keep you. This week, his smile is upon you, and he is going to be gracious to you. His presence is with you. He'll be with you forever. And one day, he will bring shalom. He will make us whole. He will reunite heaven and earth again. It's true, all because of Christ. Amen.